being the most like humble version of myself, I speak more quietly. <laughs> You're all nice and soft. <laughs> yeah. And because gentle. I'm trying to, um, I feel, I find that I'm trying to like calm myself and like make my felt myself feel comfortable. Yeah. But then it's calming to other people. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed <laughs> that it works, man. I wish I had that. I'm just anxiety and caffeine mm, all the time. You know, that's most people. Everything I think it's that. the world we live in. Yeah. It's very probably true. Like yeah. it just chasing everything yeah. constantly always. Yeah. That's our job to keep doing more and more and more and more. <laughs> yeah, it's our job as these human rats we found ourselves oh, to be. God, yeah, what's your what's your output? <laughs> what's yeah, your what's yeah. your production? Because yeah. oh, that's how I'm judging my day. Clearly, yeah. <laughs> Are we starting? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm recording. That's what I do. Okay. Well, I didn't hear a question in there, so I didn't. It there wasn't was no, no, no questions no. in there. <laughs> Welcome to the Other People Podcast. We have Jamie Thomas today. Um, skateboard legend, entrepreneur, man of faith, public speaker, father, husband, beanie connoisseur. What did we miss? I don't know. That's a, that's a big list, but <laughs> I think most of those are pretty accurate. I mean, I don't know about being a legend and all that, but I appreciate, uh, being here and thanks for inviting me to be on the podcast. Absolutely. Sure, Happy to have you. For sure. So that's why you're here. The follow-up to that is how did you get here, there, all these things? Yeah. It's a, it's a broad question. We'll, we'll reel you in, but. Yeah, that is a broad question. <laughs> I mean, I think that whenever I get asked that big of a question, I just think back to childhood and dreaming about becoming a pro skateboarder or having a life in skateboarding. And then that kind of sets the path. Where did you come to that, like where you wanted to skateboard? Was it just something you loved and then you realized you were pretty good at it? Um, I don't know about being pretty good at it. I didn't, so I think I, it was something I realized that I was fascinated by. So I found skateboarding, I grew up, first off, I grew up in a small country town in Alabama. When I say grew up, through third grade so as a little kid I grew up like on this property in the middle of nowhere like pigs and chickens and goats um, I remember uh, really wanting a, a full camouflage outfit for Christmas and a BB <laughs> gun that was like the two main things that I really wanted I was probably in third grade and I remember getting the full camo outfit and I felt like the coolest achieved. Like, yes. Yeah. It was like, it was like, yeah. I made it. Where does it go? Yeah. And I got a BB gun and we went like hunt. I wanted to go hunting and I wanted to be good at outdoor stuff. Um, my brother was, I'm the youngest of four. Our brother was 12 years older than me and he was quite the outdoorsman. He was like the, the jack of all trades. He could do anything. And so I got to just see him as like a five-year-old kid, just like being the coolest. He had like a, prefontaine like feathered hair and a mustache and i just yes. thought he was so cool in like <laughs> the late 70s early 80s he had like a pickup truck and he was like a hunter and fisherman and like anyway so i really like thought that that was the most amazing thing ever fourth grade we moved to atlanta my father's a nuclear engineer he worked at a nuclear plant in, in alabama that's why we were there i was born in florida but right away like oh yeah sense. right away moved to alabama for the nuclear plant my father accepted a job and then he got a, a job at the power company in Georgia. We moved to Atlanta for a year. 
um, saw the first skateboard there. It was like a fiberglass little skateboard in the move. It was like my sister's. It was in the garage from the 70s. We're in 1984. And I found this skateboard. It's like, which doesn't seem that old. It's like six or seven years old. But at the time it was like, whoa, this, I don't even know what this, I don't even know what to call it. Like, don't even know what the name of it is. And um, my sister told me it was her skateboard. And it was like this fiberglass Hawaiian print board, like, so like flowers all over it. <laughs> And I was like, how, what do you, how do you ride it? And she like knew how to tic-tac and walk the dog. Oh, and wow. she like showed me That's these rad. moves. Yeah, it was so, I was like, my mind was blown. First off that my older sister like. Yeah, she was knew, so cool. Yeah, she was <laughs> so cool. And I thought she was cool too. I thought all my siblings were yeah. cool. But she was skateboarding and she was, showed me how to push, showed me how to tic-tac and showed me how to walk the dog. That's so cool. I just did that up and down my street. I had a real steep hill in Atlanta that's like real hilly. Had a really steep hill, rode down on my butt, messed up my mom's isotoner gloves. Damn it. Yeah, those isotoners were dope in the, in <laughs> yeah, the 80s too. <laughs> that was the jam. Those are the only gloves I had access to. Um, anyway, burned through those. It started just skating and doing that. Didn't really know what skateboarding was. Ended was your just, downhill career though, like from the start. Well, I kind of just <laughs> rode down on my butt. And then this board was so narrow that when I hit the, when I hit the transition from the driveway to the, to the Ooh. street, I just buckled off and the gloves got ripped up and I got, you know, I probably got some of my first scabs and stuff, which is kind of cool. <laughs> anyway. Um, then the next year we moved back to Alabama for the summer and I thought, Oh, back to country life. And then right away, right before school started, my dad got a job opportunity in South Florida. We moved to South Florida, fifth grade skateboarding was blowing up. 1985 bones brigades were in full of, was in full effect and everybody at my school skated. And like that summer, um, I went to like, my brother worked in a Marina and I went to the Marina and this guy would like, look like Stacy Peralta. He had long blonde hair and, um, he was like a surfer and they were saying he could do all these cool skateboard tricks. And I was like so hyped because I knew what a skateboard was now. Anyway, he busted out his skateboard and started doing three sixties and like tic tacking and like was very aggressive. It wasn't like watching my sister and no one in my neighborhood in Atlanta skated. So it was like melting my mind. It was like, you know, the, you watch Dogtown Z boys and they talk about how, how like progressive Jay Adams was during that time period. It was like, literally like my mind was like blown and he had long blonde hair. So it looked like Stacy Peralta when he's doing three sixties, his hair was doing this like full spin move. And I was just like, how do I get one? How do I get that? And he had like a, that's funny. He had a more recent board, but it was still five years old. It was probably a 1980 board and now I'm in 85. And so he sold it to me for 20 bucks. It was a SIM super light. It was about eight or nine inches wide, kind of shaped like a bomb. And, um, Anyway, me and my brother like took it all apart, took the grip tape off, sanded it down, like re-varnished it and like put clear grip on it put with stickers awesome underneath. Work, yeah. yeah. Like put in all this work to make it all beautiful. And then, um, I skated on that for the first year. And it, like when I moved to South Florida, all the kids in the neighborhood skated after that summer and it was so cool. I skated to school. My, my elementary school was like only like, I don't know, five blocks away or three blocks away or something skating to school and just everyone in the neighborhood was like learning bonelesses and we're all trying to learn ollies and stuff. And I just couldn't think of anything else. I thought it was so cool. You could do whatever you wanted with it. And at the time I had been in like sports a little bit. I'd played like soccer in Atlanta and then in South Florida, I got into baseball and I started playing baseball and sports were cool. I liked them because I naturally 
was athletic and I could learn in those sports quickly, which made me feel like good about myself, like that I had the ability to, um, adapt to whatever I was doing and kind of rise within the top percentage enough to be a decent batter and get put in the decent batting order. And then to be an okay, you know, catcher and fielder. And that all felt cool. And like score a goal in soccer, like felt cool. But when I started skating, it was just, it was like as anything I could think of was a trick, like riding near the edge of the sidewalk and like hanging a wheel off and like grinding. Like I did, I invented something cause I'd never seen yeah, anybody do it. I was going to say like, there's yeah. so many things like at that time and so new yeah. that you're like, uh, I just, I just invented that. Yeah. And there was no, <laughs> yeah. I didn't have any access to it. I'd never seen a magazine. What do we call it? <laughs> I'd never seen a video. Yeah. I didn't know what anyone else was doing besides the few kids in my neighborhood. So every day I would hear a name of a trick. And for the first few days I might, call it wrong. I might say it was the wrong name or I I would get confused. Someone would tell me two tricks and I would get them backwards and I'd just be calling, you know, an axle stall or rock and roll for like a week, (laughs) you know, and it was so innocent and so cool, but I was just so like blown away by how deep it was and how rewarding it felt to keep learning new tricks. And I didn't need to wait on anyone. Like I started surfing around this time, but surfing was such a hassle. The boards first off for like 350, 400 bucks to get a good board, a new board. And then to get to the beach, I had to like wait for whoever to take me. And then when I got to the beach, I had to wait for the waves and then I had to learn how to, where to be and how to, all of that was just so much, but not take someone's wave. And like, there's like so much. Yeah. I don't remember much of that as a kid in Florida, but I know we didn't have, it's real. (laughs) We didn't have, yeah, we didn't have as good a waves either as they have here. So yeah, it wasn't an Oceanside pier or anything, but anyway, um, I, I just, I just like skateboarding was so cool. And then when I started seeing, like noticing all the graphics and all the like art that came with it. And then when I discovered punk rock music in seventh grade, it was on, I was just like all in, like, this is the best thing in the world. And I was feeling a lot of anger and stuff at the time, you know, just kind of angst, you know, that teenage, like early teenage, 12, 13, 14 angst and punk rock came in just at the right time to give me an outlet to just blast in my room. And so that's really like the origin story of like just falling in love with it and, and seeing how free and creative and no rules it was. And I think I just really like my personality really gravitated towards that. Well, it's like when your hobby is also transportation and yeah. like everything, it just, I mean, I was never really good, but I, my skateboard, I was everywhere. I could be anywhere like the beach or all the way in Vista. And, and I mean, up until crush my face, like that was it. And I was like, okay, time to get a car. <laughs> but, but it was, it was great. You know, you could find your friends, you knew where they were going to be. And it, I don't know. Yeah. Same thing. Like seventh grade skateboarding and punk rock was just like, Oh, what is, where was this? Like, (laughs) and all of a sudden I went from being like an an angry little kid to being like this peaceful, like, ah, I'm getting, getting everything out. Oh, I definitely wasn't peaceful. So (laughs) that's awesome. That worked for you. I I stayed pot too, but like, (laughs) yeah, I stayed angry and the, and the music fueled the anger and the aggression and I could use skateboarding as an outlet but I still just like had a lot of angst. And then my rebellious side, it, it kind of lit a fire under that too. I started like wanting to be more punk rock. Mm. You know, I am um, like, you know, spray painted my room and like I lived in a really nice suburban home and like oh, I yes. went full on 
Nar commando on this room, <laughs> like painted flames on the fan, on the ceiling fan. My mom walked in and was just like, my mom was an interior decorator, and she's just like, it looked like you were in like a back alley. That's great. And then we had spilled so much stuff on the carpet, we ripped the carpet up, and it was just like bare floor. And we were like paint markering, drawing all over on the floor. It was like I used to hang out at that house. Dude. Yeah, it was <laughs> chaos in this one little like fourteen by fourteen. Yes. Mom was cell. stoked. Yeah. Oh yeah. man. And I remember putting a deadbolt on my door. Like I don't know. It's just full. That's great. Punker kid. Anyway, shift, man. Yeah, we moved back to Alabama. Unfortunately, in the middle of seventh grade, and it was traumatic. And I moved in. We moved back to this small country town, and I was no longer fiending for the camouflage oh, outfit. Yeah. You know, I had like long Tony Hawk bangs. Unless and it like, really hide you. <laughs> it was tough. It was tough. So really, then, did you fit in with oh the people goodness. you wanted to fit in with before? There was no one. No, no. It was the yeah. it was the gnarliest culture the shock ever. <laughs> it was like seriously like a movie. Like I showed up with these super baggy shorts and like bleached converse with like anarchy and dead Kennedy's logos all over them. Like the big blonde bangs over one eye, you know, and everyone there looked like future farmers of America. Like it was crazy. There was no uniforms. It was a public school, but every single kid in my grade tucked in a shirt wore a plaid shirt, tucked it in. And that's cool. It's respectable. Whatever you want to tuck your shirt in, but every single kid had their shirts tucked in and I had like, you know, these long paisley shirts, button ups and stuff like full on eighties. I was like, you know, straight out of embracing it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Cause in Florida that, that felt right. That was what we all did. Yeah. It was like, I had an earring and like, like a dangling lightning bolt or something. Uh, I did that. I got my ass kicked a couple of times for a dangly earring. It was worth it. (laughs) Yeah. So it was culture shock, but then I found a few people that were into skating and kind of like slowly started finding my tribe again. And that was one thing I didn't mention earlier in Florida. I'd, I found this group of people that love skateboarding as much as I did and love to progress. And we just kind of pushed each other, but we're still just in the basic mode of like learning how to Ollie. And, you know, we hadn't, I hadn't even skated a launch ramp yet. I was like, I mean, maybe I'd ridden off of a launch ramp, but I hadn't learned like real tricks or anything. So yeah, it was just discovery, but yeah, the rest of junior high, I skated with a few few kids in Alabama, and then by the time I got to high school, I got a motorcycle, and I started driving to the towns nearby and skating with all the best people from all the towns surrounding our town, and you know, collectively, from like three small towns, we had about 30 skaters, and so we would all meet at like Hardy's parking lot, which is like a fast food joint in the south. We would meet at a parking lot, and then just kind of jam music and skate, and film each other and whatever. It was a blast. Sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's great. And then you, and then California is well, the by this step or what? By this time I started like really like becoming obsessed with skating. Yeah. Like I was like, it was on my mind like a hundred percent of the time. Yeah. yeah. Magazines, clothing. I started making my own clothing because no one sold baggy clothes at the time oh, in, in our, cool. in our area. So I started making like really baggy pants and, a, you know, this other pro skateboarder or this other skateboarder's mom made him pants. And I was like, well, if she can do it. I can do it. So I borrowed a friend's sewing machine and my mom fronted my business. That's, she fronted my, <laughs> my material. That's and, amazing. Yeah. And then I learned to make pants and I started doing that. And a few other guys started making pants. We made zines and we sold our zines to each other and stuff. It was kind of like getting involved in the scene and really, but, but during that process, I was so obsessed with skateboarding that 
I knew that there was only so far I could take it in our small town. Yeah. So the, I, the obvious choice is, do I move to Atlanta, which is the closest nearby big city? Um, or do I try and dream bigger than that? And so what I did was I, I, I was like, I'm moving to Atlanta for the summer. And then I, when I got to Atlanta and then if, and then we're going to save up money and we're going to move to California. So it was kind of like Atlanta was like the first stop to kind of get my head wrapped around living on my own. Um, so I quit school around 17 or not around. I quit school 17 middle of the school year, my junior year of school and, um, moved to Atlanta, stayed there for the summer. Um, I worked at Burger King to save up for a car, bought a car, moved to Atlanta, worked telemarketing to save up for the trip to California. Car broke down right before we left. I talked two buddies into going with me. Car broke down and we all pooled our money together to get the car fixed so we could take it to California. This is our house, guys. (laughs) Yeah. And we ended up leaving with, we ended up leaving with like 300 bucks each. I heard there was like a micro or a microwave in that car. Yeah, I had a microwave in my room. (laughs) Sweet, man. Well, it it wasn't like working in the car, but it was was in the trunk. It wasn't installed. (laughs) No, it was in the trunk. And then whenever we would get to a skate park or something, we would like go to the grocery store and get like a dollar hot dogs and eat hot dogs in the microwave. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty gross. <laughs> I grew, hey, I grew up on works. Franks and Beans, man, and ramen. This, yeah. this is perfect. Whatever yeah. works. Yeah. So anyway, that was it. Dreaming of California. And we left. Uh, I was 17 and we made the trip to California with a couple hundred bucks and got there with even less. And basically, you know, I guess we'll get into the rest, but the rest is history. I, I was all about just trying to get there. It's, I didn't even have my mindset on anything past that. Such a simple uh, goal. How long would you say, like, you, because you were technically homeless, right? Like, yeah, we were homeless. Point, like, how long would you say you were? Probably three to four months, uh-huh. um, which at the time, in the beginning, it was kind of like we're camping at, at the skateboard mecca of the world, San Francisco. Yeah. That's what it felt like. We were, like, skate camping. We drove to the biggest city in skateboarding, and we were just camping out. But I got sick. Um, I got strep throat, and I, I'd had strep throat previous in my life and I knew what it was but then I also started having all these sores all over my body oh, wow. and I didn't know what that was yeah and so we went to the free clinic and waited in line all day at the free clinic and it turned out I had staph infection from oh, yeah. having so many scabs but not washing mm-hmm. oh and so I had like infection in, in my body from sleeping on the streets and um so I got a you know penicillin shot and but for like the next day or two I was like before I actually went to the clinic, I was like in a fever, like really yeah. gnarly, gnarly place in the, in the car, just like in my car, just like sweating it out, not knowing what to do. And that was the closest I came to going home. That was probably two months after we were there. Yeah. And, um, but I wasn't in any condition to drive home. So yeah. I, I went, got the penicillin shot and I started to feel better. And as I started to feel better, my optimism started coming back. And then I started just thinking about what I was going to do there and how we were going to make it and how we were going to survive. Um, but we really didn't have a plan to get off the streets, which is tough. Um, when we got there, we opened a bank account because we knew that if we spent through that money, we would be in real, real destitute. So we had about 400 bucks, I think, between yeah. the three of us. We put it in a bank account. And if we didn't eat for 24 hours, we'd go and get 20 bucks out of the bank and we'd all eat like Carl's Jr. or something, yeah. like a good meal. Um, but we would usually figure out a way to eat without touching the money. We'd go, we'd maybe take 20 bucks out one day a week. And the other times we'd like sell some wheels or like trade something or just like be at the right place. I mean, 
I definitely around this time wasn't above either. Like if someone left like a half a slice of pizza on a table yeah. and I would sometimes be eyeing people. It's kind of yeah. sad. But like <laughs> the hey, scale looks full. I, no, yeah. <laughs> I wonder, I wonder if they're going to finish that. Yeah. Even asking them like, yeah. as they were like throwing their food away, like, Hey, do you mind if I eat that? You know? Yeah. And and one time, one time, you started the zero waste movement, man. Don't be ashamed. Yeah, one time, uh, someone left some food, and I'd like kind of saw it, but I was like, I don't know if I want to go for it or not. Because also, there's all these skateboarders that are really cool at this, at this plaza we were skating mm-hmm. at, and this pigeon went in for this like piece of pizza, and I remember thinking that I'm very competitive. Yeah, I, I remember thinking that this pigeon is not getting that slice. Yeah. It's near the pigeon. Yeah, and then I went and, fle- oh, I went and flexed on the pigeon and took the pizza. <laughs> And then somehow it tasted so much better. Because, I bet, yeah. yeah. That's a trophy, man. Yeah. So the things you didn't film. Yeah. Uh. But it was um, it was a really tough, tough experience. But I feel like my character and my resilience was getting forged in that time period. Yeah. What one recurring thing, like as we're interviewing people and just just from talking to people in general that uh, that have gone off on their own and and like really pursued something is uh, this either homeless or damn near homeless theme that comes. And I, and I always wonder if that kind of gives you the bravery to know that like you can, like I've been at the bottom, so I'm not afraid to try something new or like to go out and do something different. I think possibly, but I think that, you know, in my situation, I chose to be homeless. So I moved to California with no plan. And I mean that, I don't know how that's going to work out. And I knew, you know, it would either work or didn't work, but Mm -hmm. I had to try. And that's all I knew that I was doing. I was trying. And, um, I, I don't know how it is for other people, Yeah, but I feel like that I was learning I was like discovering my path and discovering my way as I went. And I felt like if I just continued to work and like try that it would work out and that I would learn. And it had worked thus far in my life. I mean, granted I'm only Mm -hmm. 17. Um, but I'd done that in contests and I'd done that in local situations and, you know, back to, you know, what you asked in the beginning, Paul, by this time I discovered that I had a knack for progression and that, that knack for progression was like a sincere passion to improve myself and to get better at what I love to do. And then as I discovered that that got attention, I really loved the attention, but I also saw it as like, like a, a vehicle, you know, like maybe if I, if I do this the right way, I cannot, I, I can avoid going back and being in the institution of school or being in the institution of Burger King or telemarketing or anything that I'd had experience over where someone was telling me what to do all the time, even, even sports. Like I liked it, but at the same time, I always knew I was getting like kind of bossed around a little bit and maybe I needed it, you know, and I was discovering discipline and I was discovering how to take direction and stuff. But I really love just kind of freestyling and like winging it too. And so I am, I did discover by this time though, that I had a propensity to identify what my potential was and then push myself at whatever the cost to get to that potential. And then, and when I got there, I push it again and then discover the next 
layer or the next phase of potential. And so I, I discovered that, you know, and that's what drove me to go to California. And like, I have a chance because I have this skill that's kind of bubbling up inside me. And the skill wasn't skateboarding itself yet. It was more about the ability to overcome small obstacles as I go. And so going to California was just a big one of those. But I, did, I don't know that I even, I think I was just so naive that I was just like, I'll figure it out when I get there, one obstacle at a time. I don't know. I mean, I definitely wasn't like... It's a luxury of youth, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it really is. is. And you know what it, it comes down to is having nothing to lose. Yeah. I had nothing to lose, you know, and I wasn't even really concerned about my life. You know, I was just like, I have to go. This is what I have to do. So it was great, you know, what you're saying when you're at the bottom, at least you know which way is up. Yeah. I think that's a really amazing thing. And, you know... But you also know how far the bottom is and that you can do it, I think. Yeah, and I've hit more bottoms since then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. Different kinds of bottoms that have been more self-inflicted. Actually, maybe I was self-inflicted too. But I do remember having a level of gratitude for basic things when I got off the street. Hmm. Like, we didn't take showers for sometimes a week or two weeks. We We had this hotel bathroom on like the 30th floor in the Hyatt. And that bathroom was never used. So we would just, you know, go in the back door of the hotel, go to the 30th floor and basically like shower in the sink. And it was something, but it wasn't like, you know, warm water running over your body and you can stand in there as long as you want. When I first got off the streets and how we got off the streets was, is that this skateboarder that used to skate this plaza that we were sleeping at, he'd skate every night, but only at like two in the morning. And we, we were always like, so like curious, like, Hey man, why are you here at two in the morning? He's like, Oh, well I go to school and I study. And this is kind of just like the time I have to myself. This is the time I have to myself. You know, we asked him where he lived and stuff. And he told us he lived in the tenderloin and, um, his parents paid for a studio apartment for him. And he's like, what are you guys doing? And we're like, you know, we moved here from the South just to, you know, follow our dreams. And we don't even like, that's just to skate and hang out and try and see if we can make something happen. And he's like, well, man, you guys can like sleep on my floor. You know, my parents pay my rent. If you give me 50 bucks each, you can just all sleep on the floor. And we were just like, whoa. And luckily we had that money in the bank. So we didn't have a security deposit. We didn't have to pay first month's rent. We just gave this dude $50 on day one. And we all showed up. You know, actually one of the guys had gone home already. So there was two of us. We gave him $100 on day one and we had a month to sleep there. This meant I could go into the shower and just yeah. sit there for as long as I <laughs> wanted. I was like, I felt like the richest man on earth oh, yeah. being able to take an unlimited shower. Yeah. It was like, that was when I, I felt like how much we had been deprived over the last few months <laughs> That's amazing. and how amazing it was. Yeah. Small victories. Yeah. It was yeah. cool. I've like, I think as, uh, from for as long as I can remember, we, we grew up pretty poor and, uh, as, and, uh, always planned for being homeless. Like in a way I was like, I could just get quarters and go to the campsites if I needed to and like shower there. And like, I know I could do that and this and, and, but, um, it's, it's really an amazing thing to like go from that. And then, and then I don't know, just have that piece of like walls and a window and, yeah, it was a crazy achievement, you know. And it, I, we don't we'd only been homeless for three or four months. Some people are homeless for way longer than that. Um, That's a long time. I mean, maybe I I had a newfound understanding and appreciation for homelessness, though. You know, we got to know a lot of the 
other homeless people that were like on our beat mm-hmm. and I got to hear their stories, you know, and, and usually substance abuse was like a major reason why people were homeless. Like they, a lot of the stories we would hear would be that, you know, the guy was an alcoholic or drug addict and then his wife would, you know, be fed up with him and kick him out. And instead of going and getting sober and trying to get, regain his life, he would be in a place of destitute and just do more drugs. And that just led to more, you know, more, um, unmanageability in his life. And he would just keep doing drugs to avoid reality. And then I started seeing that so many times that led to schizophrenia Mm -hmm. and you had street drugs, you know, kind of melting people's minds and maybe they had a propensity for schizophrenia in the first place and they were self-medicating, you know? So it was really hard to, to watch that and to hear so many stories of wreckage and to, but it totally changed my understanding of what home, like people were like, why don't they just get a job? Like I applied for jobs while I was homeless at fast food places and other places. And you have no address. You can't put anything down. You can't interview. I didn't have a phone. I had no way for them to get in touch with me. It was like, okay, I'll show back up at Tuesday and see if you like me, you know? And then I'm wearing the same thing I was wearing the last time (laughs) you saw me. Like it's really hard to maintain a job when you can't shower and you smell and you know, th- some of mm-hmm. those things are really difficult, but I don't think people that have never been homeless really have an understanding no. or a, or empathy or compassion for someone going through that. Um, yeah. Again, I was homeless, uh, you know, just on my own accord. Like I had a really, my parents at this point in their lives, they had done well. My father's a nuclear engineer for 15 years now. Yeah. Mother's an interior decorator for 10. Like we had a really nice house in Alabama and, you know, my parents, even though I m- turned my room into a you know, a punk rock like bathroom, <laughs> they, they had, uh, they had a really nice home around that. Yeah. And, and it, I had no worries, you know, and yeah. my parents would have paid for college and, but it just wasn't for me. I needed to go and explore and figure it out on my own. Where did you go from there? How did you get to, did you move down to Southern California after that? So there's kind of a string of events and I'll speed things up, um, just to get further faster. But, um, I got a small, an opportunity to ride for a small skateboard brand. Um, and that opportunity was kind of sketchy. The guy was kind of sketchy and it wasn't really working out. Um, and so I started filming a video of myself to try and give to another sponsor to get it sponsored by someone more legitimate. And, um, and I actually turned pro for that first company. No, I was unheard of really. So it was way, way premature. Um, but if I turned pro and put my name on a board, he was going to pay me more. And I was really just trying to survive. Um, you know, when I, when I did, sorry, I skipped one step. When I did get off the streets, I got a job right away. I got a job at a department store selling shoes. I had a salesmanship already. Like I'd worked at a skate shop, you know, and I already had four or five jobs by 17, 18. And so I had some basic life skills and basic communication skills that were decent. So I worked at a, a, like kind of like a warehouse type department store where it's got like, it's kind of like a Costco, but Mm -hmm. not really a Costco. It's kind of like a warehouse department store. They sold computers and stereos and all sorts of stuff. Burlington. (laughs) Yeah. I don't even know. I've never seen another store. It's called whole earth access. Anyway, (laughs) I was in San Francisco and I started selling shoes and I really loved selling shoes. I loved it. I was like, how many pairs could I sell in a day and how much could I learn about the shoes and learning about lasts and learning about the different, and this is like Cole Hans, Rockports, like men's business shoes. And then they, we had Nikes and Adidas and Vulcanized shoes. And I was learning all 
about shoe construction. I was a young kid, so I was really excited about it. I did that until I got this small sponsor. And once they started paying me a little bit, I quit the job, survived on less, but was just happy to be skating more. Cause this was turned into a job where I'm like, wait, I'm in California selling shoes. I'm not, it's not really my dream. <laughs> yeah. I didn't come here to be Al Bundy. I'm just going to say Al Bundy. <laughs> yeah. Everyone, everyone says that. So I try to, yeah. um, so I was like, I just need to skate. And these, this guy was going to pay me to skate, but he couldn't pay me regular consistently. And he was running the company pretty sketchily and he was paying me in skateboards. I'd like, he didn't have enough money, but he's like, man, I'll just give you 30 boards and you can sell them. I'm like, man, I got to sell all my own pro model boards in order to make rent. It kind of sucked. Anyway, so I started filming a video. That video got handed around and then a company um, called Invisible, which is a new company in San Diego. They, the, one of the guys that was involved with it saw it, his name was Laban, and he offered me to be a part of that. And that company was in Oceanside and it just made sense to be more of a part of the company, to move to Oceanside. And at the time I was, I'd been in San Francisco for a year and a half and I kind of felt like I'd, it was really hectic to be as poor as I was or to be as struggling as I was to have to move your car every morning at 7am. Cause you can't, you don't have a parking permit or you don't have a parking spot yeah. to live in the tenderloin and move your car every single morning at seven and every night and always being concerned about it. And every once in a while I'd screw up and get it towed. And then I'd have to go spend like my life savings to get it out of tow. Anyway, it was, it was San Francisco's tough if you don't have the resources in order to, to live there. So Oceanside seemed so mellow and so laid back and so much more similar to the slow pace that I grew up in. And so I was super excited to move down. I moved to Bonsall, lived there for a while and went to the office every day. And that office was right next to Transworld. And so I got to meet all the photographers at Transworld. And I'm like a rookie kid. I'm probably 19 at the time, maybe, yeah, 19. And, um, I just started like being in awe that I was seeing these guys that were making the magazine all the time, you know? And when I lived in San Francisco, I was working hard to try and make a name for myself. And I'd got a few photos in Thrasher, but I, you know, I had made, I'd made friendships with, you know, friends with the photographers there as well. So I kind of knew how it worked, you know, and it basically, it was a pretty simple, simple philosophy. Like if you can befriend the photographer come up with a really cool trick that is impressive and deliver on the first time you go out, they're like, Oh, I want to go out with him again. That was easy. He showed up, he handled his business. Yeah. You got me some pages. Yeah. yeah. And then they put the fo photo in the mag. I get the like positive reinforcement of if you plan and you work and you come up with an idea and you call the photographer, it works. And so when I got to San Diego, I did the same thing, but had a little bit more support from the company because the company was affiliated with Transworld, And so I was just at the magazine every day, hanging out and like getting to know people. And then sometimes they would go on sessions and I would just go with them. And I was just given a hundred percent every time I went anywhere. And not everybody was giving a hundred percent. Their lives didn't depend on it like mine did. And so it, I started to stand out as like, having a very working class or a strong work ethic because the people, a lot of people that grew up in California were very casual about the opportunities that were around them. Um, but because I'd grown up somewhere else and always dreamed of these opportunities, I was like grabbing every Grab opportunity. Them, yeah, I, was, yeah. I was grabbing <laughs> every hungry. opportunity with like a death uh, grip. <laughs> this is a, there's a book called uh, two years before the mast. Mm. Uh, it's, it's this old book from the 1800s, but it's, basically about uh california and if you read it it's like it's really cool but it's this 
a very wealthy kid from Boston and he's sick of being rich and sick of like this life where like he's just not doing anything. So he hops on a, on a ship that sails around uh, South America and then comes up the coast of California. But he describes the coast of California as this beautiful place where everyone's just sitting around. <laughs> and it's, oh, he's talking about like native Californians, but and it basically like spurred the whole Western move, like Westward movement <laughs> to California. Mm-hmm. But I just think it's funny because it's such a very, it's like, and then when you get here, like, or people that are here, we do take it for a granted. We're just like, look at the sun, look at this, everything we have. And we just kind of like hang out and just like, it's here, but other people see it and they come in and they're like, well, it's like the dream. Yeah. I'm moving to California. Yeah. And I mean, no disrespect to any native Californians, oh, but no, no, no. I just knew that it was obvious and, and how hungry I was, was a turnoff for a lot of people too. To some people it came off as like way too desperate and way too serious and way too intense. Um, so my style quickly wasn't for everybody, but for people that were trying to produce and make things happen, like get work done, they seem to like it. And that's a lot of the magazines um, and people making videos. So I basically really just clung to that. And that became the foundation for my career. Um, you know, I hung out at Transworld and I got invited on a session and there was this roof gap and I ended up kick flipping from one roof to the other. And it was, it was a long time ago. People were jumping roof gaps, but the way the roofs were, were they were like opposite angles. Um, so the sequence, when it came back, the guys really liked it. And then I came in like a month later after that, I didn't even know what they use the photos for. And they handed me the magazine and I was on the cover and it was like, and, and I'd probably been in California two years at the time. So it was really rapid, you know, kind of transition from being homeless to like being handed a magazine. You're on the cover of the magazine. It was very, very surreal. I didn't, it's amazing. yeah, I was but that was like tasting blood. I was like, Oh my goodness, (laughs) this is what I'm capable of. And so I really started like leaning in to a stronger work ethic and just really trying to push myself as far as I could and continued now that I discovered this, like imagine doing a trick as crazy as I can imagine it, conceptualizing it and then kind of preparing my mind and body for it and then inviting a photographer and a videographer there and getting it done became this like systematic thing that I would do for the next 20 years. And so kind of fostering that early on with that like positive reinforcement of people respond positively to um, skateboarders that apply themselves and like kind of show up. That's really what I was doing was I was showing up and giving my everything and um And then I just kind of stayed in that rhythm and just kept doing it. And one thing led to the next and that sponsor ended up not working out in the end. But by that time I got another opportunity. Ed Templeton asked me to ride for toy machine. And he was like, when I was a kid, he was so cool and so larger than life. And it was like the fact that he's calling me on a phone, calling me on the phone and being like, Hey, you know, I heard you're like a hard worker and you like to film and make videos. Like I really need someone like you on our team. And, I, we have to rebuild the team. Like the whole team just quit. Like I'd love it if you came aboard and helped me rebuild the team. I was 20 and Ed Templeton just calling me and yeah. telling me that he wants me to help me rebuild toy machine. I was seriously like blown away. It was the opportunity of a lifetime. And he did. He basically gave me a camera and was just like, yeah, you want to go skate? want to go film? And I filmed him. And then he had one other guy or two other guys on the team. And then, 
I started recruiting new people and we started making a video. Um, we made one just to kind of as a practice run. And then I started getting an understanding of how making a video from scratch worked. And then I'd, um, I'd made some videos with my friends when I was younger with like two VCRs, but I'd never like really made a video with like yeah. computer editing equipment or anything. So, um, computer editing equipment just came out around this time. So then I started really getting into video production and then my own career started changing too. Cause I started seeing the potential I had and the ability to string, put tricks together and put them to music and start to create more of like a very That's thought out, art. yeah, more, like more of a thought out pr project or a piece mm -hmm. that I could present that would re truly represent who I was, like the music I liked, the tricks I liked, the order I liked to do them in, the way things were filmed and the way they went together. And I think that discovery, that video was called Welcome to Hell. And that was like my first real big project where I really focused on the, tried to focus on the way it looked with all the knowledge I had at the time. I was 21. And um, it became something and people responded very positively to it. And then I just continued to refine that process. And really that's the foundation for my skateboarding career. It's, it's going through those hard times. It's discovering how to overcome adversity. It's identifying that hard work and applying myself, every bit of myself to whatever I did, people responded positively to, and it wasn't normal. And the more I did that, the more I was like building like compound interest in my career. I was like investing in my future. And then when I started learning how to make skateboard videos, it just kind of solidified all of those, all of those tools and gave me one place to apply them to. And so that was, that's the foundation, I think, for all those other things that you listed, maybe. Yeah. When do you, or when was it that you wanted your own company? Well, that was pretty quick, too. I rode for Toy Machine for two years and was like, I'm doing a lot of the heavy lifting. Yeah. I started dreaming about doing it on my own. I didn't know anything about graphic design. I didn't know anything about design. I knew how to make videos. That was it. But I was like, you know, I learned this. I can learn other stuff. And so... um I told Ed I wanted to do my own thing and it was kind of heartbreaking because I had been such a huge part of the rebuild, but you know, I didn't take anything with me from his program. So I basically helped him rebuild toy machine. And then I walked away solo to rebuild, to make something new. And I just followed the same model that I did with toy machine and started zero. And I really like people ask me like, Hey, what's the name zero all about? And I really wanted to emulate my story, which the, the thing that I've identified, and this is kind of corny or weird, but the hero's journey is what I've identified with my whole life. Every movie where I see the hero's journey carried out, the first one I remember was Rocky II. And I remembered seeing that movie and being like, anything is possible. Anything is possible if you're willing to work for it. That's what, that's what I like really felt. That movie embodied that for me. And so I basically wanted to start a skateboard company that communicated that to kids everywhere. Like, so I tried to put together a ragtag crew of misfits that weren't, I wasn't like pulling anyone from anybody's team. Like the crew, I say that, but there was a smaller brand. One of the guys left a smaller brand to come to us, but it was really like a group of underdog misfits that we came together and made some, you know, pretty crude videos, but I had this like rock and roll soundtrack. And I had this vision of dark, bold, iconic, timeless graphics and um, pulled a lot from the military and kind of just like all the inspirations from my life. And at the time skulls weren't really cool in skateboarding. It was like everything had kind of gone pretty preppy and fresh. 
And, you know, since I'd grown up and discovered skateboarding from like 85 to 89, you know, in the prime time of skulls, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to re reincorporate some of that, those iconic images in skateboarding. So I basically started, you know, using borrowed stuff for inspiration from the eighties and the late nineties. And it just mixed so well with the underdog theme. And so many skateboarders saw themselves as underdogs. So they really related to the brand and the brand like really took off just legitimately starting from zero. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It kind of just started naturally. And by this time I'd had a few interviews where my story had been told and it was kind of like the brand just represented my story and it was a big part of me and I poured myself into it and and the group of guys that I put together or that rode for it in the beginning, like they really embodied that as well. They all came from different places and they all had their own, you know, kind of ragtag story. And it, it just was a new, you know, kind of chapter of my life. And then, I mean, here I am now, 26 years later, still doing it, but it's, it's been the yeah, like for same. Sure. Cheers to that. Yeah. It's been the, um, kind of a lot of the you, same stuff. It's reinvention. Yeah. Well, I think what's cool to give you a ton of kudos is to like a lot of, a lot of people like athletes, professional athletes, well, you know, it's like you almost license your brand, you know, <laughs> like who you are and your name, you kind of license it out and it's different to actually go, okay, I'm going to build a brand that, yeah, of course you're attached to it, but it's completely separate. And, and then to maintain that for such, such a long period of time, I'm, I'm curious and sorry, I like, I, I like to dig into like business questions, but when you have a skate company like zero and you have companies coming in like Nike and Adidas and, and a lot of giants, um, is, is it hard to navigate that with, well, there's a, you know, that's a pretty loaded question. Um, Oh, I don't, yeah, sorry. No, 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 it's okay. (laughs) What I mean is, is that, um, I did just to go back a few notches. I did license my name out to footwear and clothing. Oh, of course. To footwear and clothing brands. And I experimented with that a bit and I even did to toy machine before I started my own company. And so when I would do it, I would, <clears throat> excuse me, I would observe, you know, how the company I was working with, how they used me as a professional skateboarder and, and how I would make that relationship work and, and be prosperous for us both. And I, you know, I'd really tried to identify that. And then eventually once I figured it out, just like on toy machine, I would then start that type of company. So I started a footwear company in 2003 called fallen. And we did that for 14, wait, we did it for, no, we did it for 11 years till 2014. No, wait, we did it. I I ran fallen for about 13 years. And so, um, I think for me, zero was always different because I started it when I was so young and in my, in my life and my story was so intertwined in what it was that it was really personal to me. When I started the footwear brand, I tried to replicate zero, but in a footwear fashion. And that's why it was called fallen and rise with the fallen was the like slogan of the brand. So it was basically the footwear version of zero. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And the logo, the logo was a little bit more commercial and it had a little bit, um, you know, uh, it could cross over a little bit better than say zero was zero was for zero fans only kind of. Um, but that, Zero, when, when Nike, when Nike, Adidas, Converse, when they all came in, they weren't making skateboards. So it wasn't really a threat to zero. 
but they were making shoes in a way and they were communicating with customers in a way and they were making such quality, <clears throat> excuse me, they were making such quality shoes and in creating a um, selling system that was benefiting the shop so much by releasing the dunks, mm-hmm. you know, the limited edition dunks. And that if you wanted the dunk, you had to take these three shoes. And then the night, the Stefan Janowski yeah. started really going off. If you wanted the dunks and the Stefan, then you had to take these shoes and they were basically pushing everyone else off the wall. Yeah. So eventually, and it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant strategy. They're yeah. using, they're using their strength. They're using but strong arming distributors and, and also giving everyone credit. So every, all the skate shops are indebted to them. Ah, yeah. So everyone became indebted to Nike and, and then Adidas started catching on like, this is how you do it. And then Adidas had the boost nets and they had a few shoes that were mm-hmm. really pivotal at that time. And they started kind of replicating that same method. And then Converse started doing the same. Vans are doing the same. Vans was much more easygoing about it than than some of the sporting brands, but Nike was the strongest about it. I don't blame Nike. They had a great business plan, and their business plan was to grow their business. Yeah, you that can't was it. Argue it wasn't. Competition, you they know, weren't worried about what happened to Fallen or me or anything yeah. else. But that was really tough, and I felt like a victim for a while um, when I didn't have the emotional maturity in order to be able to separate that, and I kind of struggled with that for probably five years, which seems Uh like a long time to wrestle with something, but I eventually had to let go of the brand. It wasn't working. And, um, and then I just focused more energy on zero. Um, I'd like to say, um, at that time I was struggling in lots of different ways because I kind of was far out of my prime as an athlete, you know, as this pro skateboarder and then zero was struggling too. And fallen was pretty much falling away. Mm -hmm. No pun intended. And so, I went through a really tough and kind of dark place in my life, but to answer your question, zero, I felt like always had a place because Nike and Vans and Adidas weren't imposing on that space. Zero's biggest problem was to reinvent itself and to find relevance as skateboarding continues to evolve and change. Yeah. Yeah. And so those were two different challenges. One had a landscape, mm-hmm. you know, issue with like other footwear brands and the competition was just so gnarly and they had the, the, the best team. They did the best tours. They made the best videos. Yeah. They had amazing shoes. You couldn't knock any part of it. It was all amazing, yeah. you know, and I didn't have the resources to compete with that, nor did I have the experience or understanding of what I should do differently. So anyway, eventually I focused decided to focus on zero and kind of just pull my head out of the footwear game and just kind of do that and and it took a while for me to understand what it what i needed to do to reinvent zero but i also needed the market to kind of do its thing for a while and me be able to learn from it yeah Um, i mean it's kind of i mean it's it's great to look around right now and see everybody wearing what we were wearing in the 90s yeah it's it's like i didn't have to change anything this is great (laughs) you're cool again i held out (laughs) i held out and it worked it's like 20 years that's fine (laughs) yeah yeah baggy pants are back and that's kind of an adjustment for a lot of older guys that kind of graduated from baggy into slimmer cuts and then now huge pants are everybody at the skate park has on huge pants dude it's hard i'm trying are you gonna do it no, I'm kind of like doing this like middle of the road I'm a relaxed baggy, fit relaxed. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a relaxed fit guy. Relaxed fit, maybe a drawstring. I don't know. Yeah. I'm a I'm a straight relaxed. <laughs> but I did go slim. I, did, I definitely did slim in the yeah. early, early 2000s. I had a lot of slim jeans and girls jeans, and you know was really into that like 
kind of rocker look. Oh man, yeah. yeah. Yeah, tons of Rolling Stone shirts and Who shirts and funny hats. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. Yeah. Well, where do you see zero in the future? Well, in the last few years, I've been really focusing on balance, balance in my own life and balance in everything that I'm involved in. And so with zero, I'm looking for a balance. I'm looking for a balance of new art that is like, you know, younger, newer artists that are coming onto the scene that is, you know, slightly reinventing the brand and a little bit of a um, experimentation with the brand. And then there's a, that's probably 30%. And then there's 30% where I'm like linking up and collaborating with musician, musical artists that really are integrated with the brand, or we've used that music in the past in videos, or that truly represents the brand, like the Misfits, Iron Maiden, um, Dead Moon. We're just kind of working on things that, working with bands that really exemplify what the brand is. And then in the other 30% is the nostalgic element of continuing to make what everyone's loved yeah, from zero over right. the years. And so why, the reason I break those three categories down is like, if we can do those three categories well, we can continue to reinvent. So like one is bands that have been cool for 20, 30, 40 years. They'll always be cool. That's just the way it is. And then the other is the products that have continued to sell for the nostalgic part of the brand that's a good foundation and a good basis that keeps our customers coming back and that keeps the loyal fans plugged in and feeling comfortable that zero is not trying to become something it's not. And then the 30%, or I know that only adds up to 90%, but 33, 33, 10% just relaxing. You're in <laughs> <Yeah>. California, man. <laughs> 10% is like throwing spaghetti against a wall. Yeah. But the other 33% or the other third of the business is just trying to think outside the box, make some art that looks similar to what we've done in the past, but also just use new artists and new ways of doing art and trying to just continue to play and experiment with what that looks like. And, um, and I just really like, you know, um, I don't want to say younger is in age, but like more undiscovered artists that aren't like famous, you know? Um, and so we've been trying to do that a lot and those that's really consistent. It's like, trying to do like three to four boards a month that with a, with an up and coming artist. And so it's a, it's running a skateboard brand in these days with like the direct to consumer model is kind of like running a, I, I, I compare it to like running a magazine where I'm planning out. Yeah, you've got seasons, but they're weeks, right? Like, yeah. I'm planning yeah. out, I'm planning out eight to 10 boards for the next month. Wow. And then I'm moving to, and then in the next month I have another eight to 10 boards That's a lot. and we're marketing those boards. But if you think about it, some of them are new colorways of older models or they're reissues of older classics. And then, you know, six of them or seven of them or six of them are new. And so, but we're ordering smaller quantities and the turnover rates much faster. And so it keeps it interesting. You know, I'm always interested in what I'm doing. And then the, the consumers are like, Whoa, I didn't see this coming. Or like, Whoa, I didn't see that coming. Or like, Whoa, you got to call out with them. Um, this phone just turned off by the way. Oh, okay. Let's talk. <clears throat> um, I actually want to thank you for employing oh. all of my friends growing up at black box at one time <laughs> or another. Yeah. I actually uh, did have, I had several friends too that worked there. Yeah. We had a, um, pretty big skate community going there and yeah. I wish I could take more credit for it. I mean, I guess I was running a company that needed lots of employees. So I had some credit, but I wasn't responsible for hiring, but we had tons of cool people that came, yeah. came through and contributed, you know, and 
a lot of all of the a lot of the success that we had as a business was just, we had really great employees doing tons of different things and it definitely made the company what it was That's really, thank you yeah <laughs> well thank you thank you how long did was black box from 2000 to 2014 okay yeah um started just doing zero in the beginning i was doing zero in this matt hensley's clothing company ennis um, and it was a lot of work on our behalf and it just kind of wasn't working in conjunction with zero. So Matt took Ennis back onto himself and then, um, we just focused on zero for about two, two years. And then, um, we started falling in 2003, started originally through DC and then DC sold to Quicksilver. And then I brought fallen out of DC and brought it into to black box. And so we did zero and fallen for a couple of years. And then we started a few more brands. Actually, no, sorry, we did Zero, Fallen, and Mystery from 2003 onward. Um, and we kind of added a few brands along the way to just help, like, build out the the portfolio of brands in order to give shops, like, you know, a place where they could get a variety of brands from. Um, and we had an um, awesome skate park, and, you know, we had a really cool community, and we did tons of fun stuff together, played ping pong, and had lunches together, and... It was, it was a really awesome experience. Um, I was struggling with some of my own stuff during that period. And it, sh it was just hard to balance skateboarding, being a professional skateboarder and being that obsessed with work, like work became my new obsession and, uh, it was difficult. And then also my wife and I had, you know, we were pretty ambitious with our family. We had three kids, um, 2003, six and eight. So we had three kids pretty close to two years and a little bit apart. And, um, that was tough too, trying to balance like family life, a career and running a business with no real modeling for any of the three. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'd been kind of flying on my own since 12, 13, 14, picking, you know, clinging to mentors along the way, but only hanging out for an hour for an hour or two, only hanging out for a year or two and then kind of moving, moving on. So there was a lot I didn't know and there's a lot I pretended to know. And, um, I struggled a lot with balance. It was a really difficult time period for myself and the people that were closest to me. Um, cause I said yes to all my crazy ideas and, you know, kind of drank my own Kool-Aid and believe that I could do more and more and more and more. And, eventually I'd bitten off way more than I could chew. And, you know, I don't want to blame or shame myself for the downfall of black box because some of it was industry related. It was economic downturn of, you know, eight, nine, oh, 10. Oh, wait, yeah. Yeah. But a lot of it, I had put us in a really tough position to be able to survive that economic downturn. And I'd never seen that before. And I didn't have enough experience um, or wisdom to know that that was a possibility. So I wasn't really prepared for it. And unfortunately, you know, there was a, a lot of repercussions from that lack of preparation. Um, I take ownership for it because I was the leader of the company and ultimately the company failed, you know, and had to go out of business and, um, the brands all, you know, got splintered and we had to lay everyone off and, you know, it started at a, maybe it was probably 110 people at its biggest. And over like a two to three year period, we went to four. Um, 
pretty rare. I mean, a lot of brands did that though too. You can, you, yeah, I think during our that time. I don't. I don't know that I heard a story in this time period that someone went that drastic, and it was yeah, really. I had. I had a. We had. I had bought a massive building, and I'd invested so much. I'd doubled down to such a degree that when things really started to go south, I didn't really have a lot of options. I'd kind of painted myself into a corner, and I was on the hook for a lot. And that I also, you know, kind of got big for my britches and bought a big house, started remodeling that house. It's like kind of like the very stereotypical like entrepreneur like find success like lets his ego get yeah. the best of him you know it's just going to keep coming so or yeah. or, or believes yeah. that he is as good as people might say he is on occasion and then starts to act that way and then thinks that he's impenetrable and that i'm using he because this is me <laughs> um and you know, can do no wrong and everything that I touch will continue to turn to gold forever and ever and ever until it doesn't. And then there was, it was a pretty big wake of wreckage. So uh, that sent me to a pretty dark place. I wasn't prepared for it and I didn't know what to do. And I was in denial that it was actually happening. Um, so it was definitely, I was, you know, uh, yeah, I was, I was gone for a while. What got you back? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. yeah, you're smiling today. Yeah, I'm very, very grateful today yeah. that I am not there. I'm also grateful that I'm not saying yes to everything, every crazy idea I have in my life. And um, I'm thankful that I have a, a, a great understanding for what really matters. Um, I didn't have that for a long time. It took me basically getting everything I wanted and then losing it all and then identifying really what you know, what really matters and what makes me, what really brings me joy and took a, took a lot to get there. But I'm so, so thankful to have gone through all that I've gone through because, you know, without that, I wouldn't have the gratitude I have for, you know, the place I'm in and the friends I have and the, my family and just every moment, really. Like, it's crazy how you can just be thankful for a moment. I was never yeah. thankful for a moment. I was always like, what should I be doing right now to be ultimate, to be super productive? And yeah. how can I multitask in this situation? Oh, I can cry like that. And I'm like just watching a moment. <laughs> like if it's like, I've got my two kids and, and Kim and we're like just on the couch and I just look over, I'm like, <sighs> yeah, I mean, like, it's really quick. It's like those things. I'm like, that. this is important, you know? And like, but I, I, I don't care. Yeah, I think I that I think what you're describing is identifying just how truly blessed we are to be in the place we are in, yeah. you know, and and what I mean by place, I mean by like like you know physical somewhat, but more like emotional, spiritual, and in connection, you know. And I yeah. I think that those moments happen when we're in connection, and that's what I really discovered is is that's what all that matters is, you know, connecting and serving others, and. You know, I, I was really, all, it was, there was a lot of years where I was about serving myself and serving my own pride and ego. And I'm thankful to not be a slave to that any longer. I mean, occasionally I slide into that pattern again for a brief moment, yeah. but it's not long enough to wreck my week. It might wreck my day. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's the way I look at like everything. It's like, it, you know, it's it, people quitting smoking or quitting drinking or something like that. I try and tell them like, dude, it's a marathon. If you fall down, you don't go back to the start. You right. get up and you just keep going, you know, like you just keep one foot in front of the other. And that's, if you live like that, then you're going to be okay. Where were uh, we? Where were we? Where were we? I think you were talking about, um, 
the end of ego. Yeah. The end of ego. Yeah. We were talking yeah. about after being humbled, you know, what oh, brought yeah. you back up. Yeah. Cause that's, well, um, it took me a while to figure out how to kind of rebuild my life. And part of it was rebuilding my life. And part of it was rebuilding my character. I'd kind of lost my way and didn't really have a purpose. It was kind of like working and trying to sustain a, uh, a relationship with my wife and my wife and I, we got married early along this path in 1997. So like right after welcome to hell, we were dating through welcome to hell. And then right when I started zero, we got together, you know, like around wow. that same time period. And so we got married in 97 and, you know, depending on how you look, we've been married for 25 years and some change. And so this, that relationship had suffered through all of my obsessiveness with work and video parts only for us to lose most everything. Like I had put so much into the company that when the company kind of went down, I'd lost a lot. I hadn't really taken a lot out of the company. Um, I put a lot into a house and then it ended up being the worst possible time for that. And I ended up having to sell the house. So I sold it for the same price I bought it for after remodeling the whole thing. Man. Yeah. It was really gnarly. It was probably one of the, I mean, actually I had some pretty, pretty heavy financial lessons. I started a factory or I bought a factory that was in Mexico, a skateboard factory. And there was an embezzlement that was really, really gnarly for two years. And I didn't know about it until we were so underwater that I would have had to invest a few hundred grand to get it out of, to get it out of trouble. And I couldn't come up with the money fast enough. And the Mexican government seized everything. What's your recourse? They don't have any. They seized everything in the factory and auctioned it off in order to pay the employees their severance. So, but I was still on the hook for the note of buying the factory. So I had to pay that note for two more years after the Mm -hmm. factory was completely gone. Oh man. Yeah. It was really gnarly. I basically, there was no end to my ambition. It was like my only option was to just burn it all down. Like I was going to run it so hot (laughs) until it all caught a flames and I, it was going to be like you stole it. It was going to be scorched earth (laughs) and it's really sad, but I was completely obsessed with progression and you know, I don't know. What was my goal? Take over the world, like become the biggest, you know, skateboard entrepreneur. I don't know. I don't know what my goal was. I don't even think I had a goal. I think it was just more and more and more an insatiable appetite for, for progression, you know, and any, at whatever cost. And so that, that's pretty hard to be around, you know, um, it's definitely a cautionary tale. And my wife was really struggling. And when I didn't get a clue after all that happened and I didn't check my ego and I didn't really understand and I started deflecting and I was in denial. And then, you know, I, um, went through phases of Instagram being the most important thing in the world because, you know, if I, if I kept my Instagram loaded with all the highlights from my career, people were kept telling me I was awesome. Yeah. Even though I wasn't really creating those things now. It was like things from the past and I was kind of like uncle Rico and Napoleon dynamite. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty, it's pretty sad, you know, to talk about it, but it was what I had to go through. And eventually my relationship with my wife was, you know, in total disarray. And it was, I was looking at, you know, like it was over, like we, we weren't functioning and I was barely like 
earning enough to like support the family because my reinvention was, you know, it was only as strong as I was and I was all over the place. So it was tough. But, um, around this time, you know, I had gone, you know, I'd been a Christian for almost 20 years by this time. Well, maybe not, maybe 15 years. Um, but I'd gone in and out of being really focused on my faith and, and kind of like walking in the light and trying to, you know, live by the, the teachings and the lessons of Jesus. And I'd pretty much fallen away from this and kind of like become the, you know, the, my own God and whatever source or whatever sense. So I really started there. I started surrendering there first. I started surrendering my heart and my will and, kind of asking for God's help. And then I joined in community, um, through the church and I started getting into a men's group and I, um, I joined a 12 step group just to get a better understanding of who I was and what I needed to work on. Um, I had some addiction stuff, um, pretty consistently throughout my life. It was pretty much, I was addicted to whatever I was doing like at that time. And I knew I had issues with it and I knew I needed more help than just not doing those things. I needed to, because, yeah. you know, the addictions are the symptoms and I really needed to get to the root cause of, of my feelings of inadequacy and not being good enough and wanting to escape that feeling is why I drove myself so hard. It's and usually a coping mechanism, right? For sure. Yeah. yeah. I was coping in all these different ways. Yeah. And then I would discover that something wasn't healthy and then cut that out. But because I wasn't treating the, the root cause... I would just start coping in some other way yeah. that I didn't even understand, didn't even identify because I wasn't really trying to get to the issue. Um, so it was pretty much like an intervention with my wife and just letting me know like, Hey, we can't keep doing this. And so I just tried to seek help. I got into therapy and started unpacking the pain of my childhood. I didn't really talk about that pain earlier, but that pain was, is that my father who I really wanted love and approval from was not really there and didn't really understand me or how to connect with me. And so I felt this big broken relationship that was a, a chasm in my life of wanting love, approval, validation. And because I never got it from him, I was seeking it outwardly everywhere I went. And it was an, I had an insatiable appetite for it. And that drove me, you know, when it was in a healthy phase of life. But then afterward, I, I was just broken and didn't know how to, to deal with that. And so I went into therapy. I was going to therapy two days a week for like almost a year just Good. because I really yeah. needed to like, I had no, I couldn't even figure out what to do. I think at a certain age, you, it's hard to find more mentors, you know? Yeah. Like I didn't know where to look for mentors either. Yeah. You know, I was kind of like at a point where people had looked up to me to be a mentor and now I was like lost. Yeah. And so I really just sought help wherever I could get it. And then my wife was instrumental in this transformation. She was reading books and constantly trying to improve herself. And she would serve up podcasts and books to me. And at first I, you know, I think I was maybe too prideful to really like just humble myself to like take them all in. But eventually I started kind of listening to it and I really wanted to work on our relationship and I knew we needed more positive things to talk about. So I started reading the books she was reading so we could talk about those books together. And then, um, we kind of almost started dating again and it kind of went back to like investing in that relationship as we were dating and learning how to, you know, communicate with one another and 
do some improvement more improvements on our own and then like spend some time together discussing what we're learning and not taking each other for granted. Yeah. yeah. That's a big one. Yeah. I think that, I think that I really needed to just go do a lot of work by myself for about yeah. a year or two. And we kind of stayed in the relationship, but the relationship around that time was really just focused on showing up for the kids the best we can. It was really like we were in like, just get it done mode. You know, and the, the, the connection between us was not really strong, that strong during that time period. But the more I started to discover, you know, these issues that I was facing and what they came from and started to understand and unpack that I, I, I started to become, <laughs> I don't mean to be too hard on myself, but I became more tolerable to be around, you know, and I, I think that I started listening more and asking more questions and, I, and I, it's difficult when you're having issues, personal issues to get along with the person you're closest to, but you can go practice on friends. And I practiced on people in men's group and 12 step groups and just kind of practice maybe listening. And, and then I practiced serving and trying to show up for other people and think about other people and call them and ask how they're doing and check in on people and just try to practice being more considerate and, and, you know, seeking out connections um, real connections with people, not like pseudo Instagram connections. Oh, I also took a really big break from Instagram. I, yeah. I say big. I took like three months off. That's pretty <laughs> hey big. Hey man, that's in this day and age. Yeah, I took like three months or six months off. And then I started posting like once or twice a month. But before this, I was posting every day for like five years. Is it, the algorithm gets you though. I mean, that's, we are... Uh, it, I don't even... Our human brains are, are yeah. just learning to be equipped enough to like deal with this I've, but you're just chasing that validation right it. yeah you're just it's like oh hit. i got a lot of likes on that one i'm gonna i'm gonna post again and you know and it's like that you're just chasing that feeling yeah but it's it's but all it's, kind of fake it's not but it's got to be hard because it's a it's still a tool like for business well, you have and, to have it but it's it's not really that good for you but how you use it i guess right yeah, I think I think that you know we talked about it being like a pseudo connection or like it's like sugar where it's not sustenance, it's not something that you can live on, but it's like a starburst or something. You know what I mean? And and you can eat it, but you're gonna need real food. You're gonna need like real life. And you know, cutting that out of my dependency and my validation, identifying that I had a real problem with it, um, I still have the same problem. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's just, I do it less often and therefore I'm not using it to define my worth. And so that really helps. And I kind of, and you know, I defining worth is pretty gnarly to say, but I kind of see whether I had a good day or not is if I like, if I like showed up for other people and if I was present and if I feel like, you know, I was, I contributed to, you know, my life and the lives of those around me. That's what f makes me feel now like I had a good day or it was a productive day. Sorry, not productive. It was a good day. And then it used to be completely on how many boxes did I check and, yeah. you know, what, what did I, I think I it's, a, it's, it's still, but it's, it's a hard thing because to manage and, and actually this will be a question now that I'm saying, it, but managing that balance of, being present and still having to run a business and, and get things done and do things. That's, 
it's, it's a, it's a hard thing to do. And I think that especially people that maybe somebody that wants to start their own brand or wants to get into business for themselves, how would you, you know, mentor them in a sense, like to, to keep that balance and still, I won't say productive, but still like work towards a goal when you're trying to do that. Well, for me, the balance is, is the, um, the discipline of having a schedule that you stick to and that the people that are closest to you can depend on. And so it starts there for me. It starts being available in the morning, a hundred percent of myself. There's no phone, there's no computer. I'm making breakfast for my kids. I'm helping them out the door. I'm, you know, talking, having conversation with my wife about my day, her day, just being very present. And then when I get to work, I try to catch up with everyone and ask how they're doing, you know, how their weekend was, how their night was. Um, and maybe the day before I asked what they were going to do and then I'll kind of know what they did and then I'll ask how it was. And I think it's really about, for me, it's really about connecting. It's connecting with other people. I also start my day off with like a quiet time where I do a daily devotional, um, where I read, you know, a little bit of scripture and then I read a story about how that scripture applies to real life. And then I, you know, start my day off praying and, you know, I have a gratitude list that I thank God for all the amazing things in my life. And I try and rifle down this, uh, at least a list of 20 things and I try and switch it up. So I'm not just, you know, repetitively thanking them and in, in repetition about the same things. And I no longer feel that they're, yeah. that they're real. Um, it usually starts with my wife and then it starts with health and then it goes to my kids. And then it, you know, I'm just so thankful to be in a relationship with someone that I love so much and that I've discovered you know, her true beauty and all of the goodness that she gives to me and to our kids and how much, you know, how patient she was with for me for 20 years to like figure it out and start yeah. to be like a real, real partner to her or try to be. Um, so I'm super, you know, grateful for that. But then I thank God for like everything. Like my, I'm thankful I have a car. I think I have a job. Thankful I have like you know, physical ability, my physical health, you know, yeah. skateboarding and friends and family. And then I go from there and I go into praying for people that I know are struggling. Um, and that, I think that these two things grounds me in being very, it grounds me in gratitude and it grounds me in thinking of others and less about like, you know, you know, God make this happen for me. You know, when I was a kid, I always prayed for home runs and, you know, <laughs> prayed for things, yeah. prayed for God to show up in ways that served me. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that that is a big grounding. Um, but then I seek connection at every possible chance. Sometimes I'm connecting with myself in the sense that, so I started the day off connecting with God. And then if I listen to a podcast or a book, I'm connecting with myself and I'm reflecting on whatever they're saying in the book and the podcast. And I'm trying to, you know, make comparisons to my life or my previous life, whether it be something that I really enjoyed or was really grateful or I was really grateful about or something that I found that I had a really negative habit and I'm thankful to not be practicing that anymore. And I think that that is that part of connecting with myself and trying to identify that there's growth happening like in real time. It's like happening right now and then getting to work and trying to connect with the employees. Um, and then the team riders, if they come in or going skating a little bit, um, and then being at home, you know, to connect with my family again and ask my kids how their day was and connect with my wife and hear what she has to talk about. I said connecting really 50 times in this yeah. spiel, but it really, I've That's found, important. I've found that, 
connection is the antidote for addiction it is the antidote for like self, uh, you know, just obsession with self. And so, you know, I, I definitely was practicing some narcissism and some self-absorbed qualities and the ego was running the show and I'm just trying to practice living in connection with God, myself and others as often as I possibly can. Um, your question was about balance, which I realized I kind of went off on this tangent, okay. but, but, but staying in that place means that I feel I can be present and take other people's input. I can be more open to it because I'm practicing all of that mm -hmm. around it. Yeah. You know, and it means that I'm online. I'm online more regularly. I'm not going into robot obsessed, like perfectionism mode, you know, which I, I lived in perfectionism obsession for a long time. And I can imagine how difficult it was for employees around me that were watching me click one thing to the left, you know, two clicks on, Inst on, uh, on illustrator and then mm -hmm. one click back and then one click back and then, you know, up down, like it's just madness, really like madness. Um, so I don't know if that answers the question, but I think that the balance I find is knowing what really matters and what really matters to me is to show up for the people that I love and that are closest to yeah. me. And that is the number one priority and anything else I get to do is great. Um, sometimes when I'm kind of not in the mood to listen to a book or a podcast, I have a, you know, a 10 or 20 person call list that I just try and call someone out of the blue and just call them. And if they don't answer, I just send them a text and let them know I'm thinking about them. And I feel like that is just investing in them. It's like putting just a coin in their love bank to let them yeah. know that someone's thinking about them, you know, and that, and if they answer, I'm like on this cool, like old school conversation. I say old school because we're all communicating <laughs> through, through text and, you know, messages yeah. and captions and, yeah. you know, comments. So it, I feel like that has been, most of this is the life changing events. It's like I planned out when I first realized that I had some real problems and I needed real changes. I planned out my work week in order to have like real connections where I was forced to sit in a circle, whether in men's group or 12 step group or at church or somewhere where I was forced to really be still and listen and, and show up and is basically open myself up to connection on a regular basis. And I found that there wasn't a lot of room for addiction and selfish focus when I like filled my day. It's kind of like kids, right? You mm -hmm. want to like fill their day to keep them busy so they don't get into trouble. Yeah. It's the same thing with an adult, except as an adult, we can rationalize and justify that this is a part of my job. Like I justified that Instagram was a part of my job for like, yeah. for like six years or something like this is how I stay relevant, <laughs> you know, but it, it's not really, it's, yeah. that's really just, I didn't need to do that because I'm, I'm not like way less relevant now. It's just that I'm not like feeding my ego all day, you know, and I mean, maybe I'm less relevant and maybe it doesn't really matter about relevancy. It's just really about, I don't know, focusing on what matters. And I lose it. I lose the plot sometimes and I, you know, I fall back into old patterns and stuff. But the, the cool thing is, is I identify it way quicker. Self-awareness is like yeah. the biggest gift anybody can receive. <laughs> Yeah, mm -hmm. I think. For sure. Yeah, for sure. No, and you answer the question actually pretty well. Okay. So, yeah. I know it took a long time to get there, but I think that how I found balance was, you know, putting others, trying to put others first. 
and just practicing that on a daily basis and then identifying how good it feels to have real conversations with people. You know, like I get to hang out with Paula sometimes and it's always yeah. a joy. We always get to talk about cool stuff and like, you know, hear where each other are at in life. And I feel like if you can go into situations and make sure everyone is feeling good and then you can start opening up and being more vulnerable and then the other person opens up and whoever's, yeah. whoever's feeling more comfortable first is the person that's <laughs> yeah. going to open up, you know? And I think once... You know, I mean, Brene Brown talks about that so much, the power of vulnerability. Like in order to have true connection, there needs to be vulnerability. Yeah. yeah. You can't ever, I don't know, let people in if you don't just open up to anybody. And I'm guilty of holding a lot of stuff in. So it is nice to have conversations like that. And I'm not used to that a lot of times. So we do have good conversations and I like that. So it is yeah. nice to do that. I need to do it with other people too. I think our culture doesn't really promote it anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone's kind of... I'm sure you guys have been to trade shows in your life, but everyone's like yeah. on the trade show talk. Glad you, and Yeah. You like shake hands and you talk about the like top two layers, yeah. you know, but you're not really ever getting to a meaningful place. I mean, this is a common topic as well is that, you know, we're all living on the surface, you know, but, um, I think what it, you know, in order for life to truly matter, it's like trying to find how to connect with people. You know, and we're trying to do that as a company too. trying to figure out how to make products that connect, you know, with people. I mean, that's how I think you run a successful business now is to, you know, make things that people can connect with, whether it be nostalgia or whether it be inspiration or whether it be art, it just everything need in order for someone to want something, it needs to have, it needs to play some sort of role or have a purpose in their life. And so, I mean, that's kind of you know, maybe giving skateboards too much credit, but you know, some things that you could revisit a graphic, like we'll reissue something. And, um, and, and that board was really important to them when they were young and it yeah. like brings them back to a place where think it was simpler times, you know, they were like 16 they have to worry about their job or their kids or whatever, yeah. you know, and there's a lot of, you know, I, I have this theory that you know, everything that we experience in our lives up to 17 or 18, it, it is like 50% of the things that we like. And the other 50% is a revolving door. New things come and go. But the first 50%, whether it be music, movies, influences, those things are just non-negotiable. Yeah. We're holding them down. That 50% is <laughs> this locked is off. This is so true. Yeah, yeah. it is true. And I remember being a kid and seeing like, uh, dudes, listen, I, I won't name bands because I don't want to belittle any band but i just remember going man is that guy ever gonna listen to anything new you know like what is going on and now i find myself my i'll get in the car and, and like a lag wagon uh, album will come on and i'll be like yeah wait this is 30 years old like what am i doing i'm still listening to it like no this is the new one this is the new one that's 20 <laughs> years old this is terrible lucky i don't gray too much so like I, i'm always shocked but yeah. It is true though. <laughs> I definitely like all that stuff still. Yeah. I'm so guilty. Stuff. I think that's a good thing though. And I guess all that means is, is that our youth was a very influential phase of development in our lives where we were open to so many new things and, you know, we let them in. But then now that they're there, they're, they're so formative for us that we lock them off and we don't want to let them out, which it's a part of our identity and who we yeah. are and how we got to where we are now. Um, and it's, it's great that, you know, if you're 50%, some people are more like 90, 10, and that's kind of annoying. Like they won't change. They won't mm -hmm. come into the now at all because 
they're 90%, you know, who they used to be and they're just not open to forward progression. Um, but I think that's what's cool. I mean, I'm in a relationship with a woman that is very focused on change and growth. And so we're, you know, she has a little, a little more time on her hands. So she's, you know, than I do, I'm, I'm engaged in work. She's engaged in kids and she's, you know, she does home organizing and is a DIYing at our house. Um, but she listens to books all day and yeah. she just crushes books and I wish I could keep up with her, yeah. but she's just like, you got to listen to this one. You got to listen. I'm like, I'm, I'm in the middle of two other ones right now. <laughs> where's, the, where's the audible feed? We need to no, know what are, the books it, are. Yeah. We are on audible. Yeah. And I'm, I listened to everything at 1.2 times just so mm-hmm. I can hopefully catch up. <laughs> Um, That's great. Anything past 1.2, they sound like chipmunks, but uh, 1.2 is like they're having a fast conversation. Like they all both drank too much coffee uh, yeah. or the author drank too much coffee. Yeah, I do that with the podcast too. Sometimes I'm like, this is, it's three hours, man. I got to burn through this. Put the, uh, Wyatt putting him to sleep. I've got to, I go in there with one earbud in and that's how I knock out books at night and I just lay there with him. Oh, wow. That's, that's pretty nice. Cool. Yeah. Learn things. Yeah. At whatever cost, we have to keep learning and growing. I think that's mm-hmm. what I've discovered. And um, so, yeah, it's books are critical. Those Ryan Holiday books, I'm not sure if you've cracked those open yet, but pff, they're life changers. It's basically him taking sto- Stoicism, Stoic yeah. philosophy from all the greats, Epictetus and Marcus wow. Aurelius, but he's creating stories that apply to now and they are, they will unlock your mind and, and, um, you know, in the, the philosophy of stoicism is so fascinating to me. I've never really been into philosophy and I've never really invested in anything other than the now. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, being in 12 step group and the serenity prayer of, mm-hmm. you know, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference that helped me get through some really difficult phases of my life. And then to know that there's like a philosophy and there's tons of philosophers thousands of years old so that have, to read and that, still so relevant. It's yeah. so relevant. Like if you repackaged it, it could be now, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so the books that I'm talking about, yeah. you know, I think one of the, the first books that hit the New York's bestseller list was obstacle is the way. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty self-explanatory basically, you know, the things that we don't want to do or the things we're trying to avoid, that's what we have to do in order to grow and become the people we're supposed to be. So obstacle is the way is like kind of the entry to it. And he does such a good job because he, he takes all of these really pivotal people that have faced radical adversity in their lives throughout the history of man. And he condenses their story into a very digestible, like eight to 10 minute story. And then he gives you how that applies to us now and how you can use that information in order to be a better version of yourself. And then it goes into this little song jingle and it kind of like lets you ponder on that thought <laughs> That's and cool. then, and then he starts yeah. another one and they just keep coming. Oh, wow. He's oh. amazing. And then there's another one after that. It's ego is the enemy. And that one was like, I swear he made it just for me. Um, <laughs> what kind of ego my, is that? That's my, that's my <laughs> that's ego. Great. That's my ego telling me he made it just for me. That's awesome. But really I, I related so much to ego as the enemy. It was yeah. huge. And he has those two tattoos. He only has two tattoos on his, on his body. And he has, you know, obstacle is a way on one forearm and ego is the enemy on the other forearm. And, um, and then from there, and he, I think he got the tattoos before he got the, wrote the books. So they were like part of his inspiration. Um, and he has another one, a new one that just came out is called discipline is destiny. And my wife's like already plowing through that one. And I have to get through, 
um, I'm just finishing up at the end of both the obstacle is the way and ego is the enemy. He has like an hour and a half interview, long form podcast interview mm-hmm. with Tim Ferriss. Oh, cool. Yeah. I was going to say into stoicism, like, yeah, Tim Ferriss, um, I think produced both these books and was like, kind of like his mentor throughout these two. Um, and so there's interviews at the end of both of those books with oh, Tim wow. Ferriss. So where they're just like really getting in the weeds about their inspiration. So really cool. Um, just kind of like to unlock the mind in these different ways and to practice this. And it's, it's kind of nice that my wife's always a little bit ahead of me. I just, I have something to strive for and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I want to be in that. I want to be in those conversations with her and I want to be growing and evolving. Sometimes though, I'll hear her say something to me and I'll be like, man, that's so profound. And then it'll be two chapters. Ahead of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I realize, me. like, I see where you got that. <laughs> I see where you got that. Hey, but she's implementing it. into. Yeah. She life. is implementing it. And, or she's at least seeing it in, like carry out in my life. <laughs> so great. yeah, discipline is destiny is next for me. And I, I should be able to finish the Tim Ferriss. I'm really, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to catch up on those. those yeah, they're those good, man. Like really you good. won't regret it. It's, I think, I don't think they're that long either. And they're, they're worth every, every second. I still listen to them at 1.2 though. It's <laughs> <laughs> flying through. Yeah. It's absorbing through osmosis, man. That's awesome. Is there anything else you, uh, that you're just like loving right now that helps um, you? I mean, I think a lot of it is just like, growth and trying to figure out how I can apply what I'm learning, mm-hmm. you know, cause oftentimes we'll listen to a book and then we'll be like, Oh, that's so cool. Or like, we'll think about it and obsess, you know, like kind of be into it while we're listening to it or reading it. But then when you're done, you kind of go back to your old life. But I think that what's really cool is to be able to have someone else go listen to the book with you. So you can kind of talk and reflect like where in your life, these things have come up and, it's so, I feel like it's like everybody should be involved in a book club is what it feels like to me. Yeah. And we're starting, I'm getting jealous of it. No, I see. We're starting one of my work right now and obstacles away is the first book and I'm paying my employees and giving them audible accounts and paying them like it's a college course so we can do it every month, do one book a month. That's That's the goal. Cause audible gives you, you know, one credit a month. Yeah. And so we're just going to go one book a month and I think we'll do obstacles away and ego is the enemy maybe just do those three Ryan holiday books back to back. They may be over it and they may outvote me, but um, there's another one that's, that's um, Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. I'll join this book club, man. That (laughs) sounds good. I know. I think that may be in my future to, to to start a men's book club. I'm in a Christian men's book club at my, at my church. Um, It's basically a men's group, but we go through a book each semester of, of men's group. It's really cool to be able to, be in a group with all different men from all different walks of life. Mm-hmm. It's not like, you know, I was so pretentious about like, Oh, that guy's not cool. He's got like lame shoes or he wears mm-hmm. sketchers or whatever, yeah. you know? And I still think sketchers. <laughs> we can still say, no, no, <laughs> yeah, I, you can I have, that. I have a feeling I we agree. will not have anybody affiliated no. with sketchers on here yet. Yeah. So anyway, so oh, I, um, I used to be so judgmental, but now I'm discovering you know, the commonalities rather than focusing on the differences. Yeah. And I think that's a big, that was a big pivotal time for my growth. But at any rate, um, I'm in this men's group. Yeah. And everyone's so different everyone's got different jobs and I get to hear about their lives and what they're going through. And then we're reading these books together and I hear about their interpretations and it challenges mine or mine challenges theirs and just being held accountable and having, 
having that dialogue is so I think important. And, you know, I used to do it about Thrasher and about, you know, videos and Mm -hmm. stuff, but really it was all critique and, and judging. Yeah. It wasn't like dialoguing on the struggles that we face and how we're going to get better at dealing with them. You know, and stoicism so amazing in itself, you know, and I, I owe a lot of this from my wife teeing it up for me, but you know, the serenity prayer aligning with stoicism so well and, and understanding that you can't control what happens to you. You can only control how you react to it. And I just think that that's like something we all have to learn. That's the key. That's like secret to living a happy life. That's coping. Like that's the, I I feel like that's like with anything with addiction, with stress, anxiety, it, it is, it's how you react to things. And that's like, that's the tool if you can figure that out here. But I feel like, I feel like all those other investments that I've started to make in my life helped my self-talk and helped my relationship with myself because I no longer saw myself as a, well, I still see myself as a victim sometimes, but I'm, I'm getting better at identifying when I see myself as a victim and that has me complaining less. And then that also you know, helps me identify and have better self-talk so I can talk my way through it. Like if I feel rejected by someone or by my wife or she doesn't want to hold my hand or something happens, I I can remind myself that like she loves you. You are very loved. You know, this act does not define love, nor does it, you know, mean that she doesn't love you. And just having that really simple dialogue with myself reminds me that I'm okay. You know what I mean? This doesn't need to happen. I don't need to take this personal. Um, the four agreements yeah. is a great book too. You know, it's such I a basic one, book. but it's so good. Um, you know, and it's kind of the four agreements that we should all live by. Um, and not taking anything personal is one of the four agreements, but I, am um, I feel like that's really been this like personal growth journey is what I've been on. And as I discover all that I'm learning and all that is helping me change, I want to share it. And I've been feeling, you know, what's next after skateboarding for me. So mm-hmm. I've been kind of taking coaching lessons for public speaking and trying to put myself in uncomfortable situations where I am, you know, speaking at a level that I'm comfortable with, like podcasts is a good start. Mm-hmm. Um, interviews is a great start. Um, but also, you know, I hosted a men's group, um, an online men's group of skateboarders that are um, a Christian men's group. Um, I hosted that a few weeks ago and it went well, I think. And a lot of this, I'm just telling parts of my story, but trying to condense them into small, um, you know, chunks that are around one topic and then pulling some scripture in to kind of identify, um, the clarity I've had around that topic. But I really want to progress and learn at that. I'm probably will start at high schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and figure out how to tell pieces of my story that may, that will hopefully be helpful to high school students so that maybe they can avoid some of the pitfalls that I've faced. Um, I think, uh, in one after ego is the enemy, um, Ryan holiday and Tim Ferriss, you know, talk about, he, he mentions this quote and I'm kind of probably going to butcher it because I don't really remember who said it, but it talks about, I mean, the, the basis is, is that, the secret is to learn from others' mistakes, not have to make those mistakes our, ourselves. Yeah. You know, and we obviously learn really important lessons by trial and error. You know, it's 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 great, but having to do that at, at, with with big swings is is really tough. And I yeah. am I am an absolute cautionary tale of that. 
You know, you don't have to swing that big. You don't have to bite off that much um, in order to have a happy full life because I had an insatiable appetite for more. Mm -hmm. I had all the money. I had all the success. I had all anything that anyone would want. I basically got everything I ever wanted and that was the biggest curse. Yeah. You know, and I had to lose it all in order to under, in order to identify what really mattered. Um, so I feel like if I can hopefully get better at telling that story, I can hopefully help people like serve people in a way. And, you know, and if I get good at it, maybe it can help provide for my family as well. So it's kind of like, you know, turning your experiences into a product that hopefully enriches other people's lives or at least, or at least gives them some hope. Um, you know, because in, in 12 step groups, it's all about experience, strength, and hope. You know, the experience is what happened to me. The strength is how I got through it. And the hope is where it can lead you, like where the reflection and understanding from the experience and strength yeah. can lead you. And that's what's so beautiful about 12 step groups is because you can talk in a circle and just be absolutely who you are and like be really vulnerable. And I think that practice is really beneficial in just coming clean and becoming like, you know, yeah. shame and guilt free and trying to learn, trying to learn and live a better life. I think that's huge for people. Uh, just, um, I, uh, personally, my, my father, he died of a drug overdose and mm. he, um, he was in a group, but th- there was still shame, you know? And, and I think that, part of why maybe he didn't go back was because he was so scared to let people down again. And I wonder, uh, I feel like now, now even more than other people, people are so much more comfortable with, with, um, understanding addiction and understanding like mental health issues and things like that. that There's more information out there for it. Easier to be more vulnerable. And so I, I don't know. I, I, I love that about now and wish that it could have been before, but yeah, I think it, it really, you know, I'm sorry to hear that. And I think a lot of it, you're right. has to do with resources and tools, you know, cause what I've learned in group is I've gained the tools for the toughest day. Sorry. That's fine. <laughs> Done. That's okay. I've, you know, through recovery, I've gained the tools to navigate whatever life throws me, you know, so I don't have to slide back into addiction because I've spent enough time practicing a new way of living. And I'm so grateful that like going back into addiction seems like drinking poison. You know, it seems like the complete opposite, you know, and like you said, you're running a marathon and you can see like in your rear view mirror, you can see where you came from and it's like a speck in the distance. Yeah. And the last thing I want to do is go back there. You mm-hmm. know, I'm not trying to turn this, this train around. Yeah. I'm trying to keep going forward and keep yeah. like living a life that's worth living with purpose. Um, I didn't have purpose before, yeah. you know, and I didn't have hope. And I think that having a faith and having a, you know, a higher power and being able to communicate with that higher power on yeah. a daily basis is such a, such a critical part of that daily connection. I really, I think it's, it. it's, it's connection is the antidote for addiction. I think you're right. I, 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 and I like what you said about, you know, you, you're very open about it. you slip up 
You know, mm-hmm. every now and then you're going to slip up and, and you just correct it. It's all about self-correcting, you know? Yeah. I think that uh, one book that I didn't mention, I started to, but there was a book by the Navy SEALs, Jocko Willink, oh, yeah. Leif Babin. It's called Extreme Ownership. And when you slip up, you take ownership for it and you acknowledge, especially to the people that you affected negatively. And when you do that, you're, you're building, uh, um, first you're gaining a level of awareness, but you're also building trust that you're trustworthy in the sense that when you make mistakes, you will own them and take ownership for them and not blame other people for them. Um, so I feel like that is a huge part of this as well as taking ownership and when you're wrong, you know, admitting it as fast as you can and then spending less and less time in that like spiral, mm-hmm. you know, of like, I suck or, you know, shaming yeah. yourself you know, I'm, I'm never going to get this. And, you know, I think that, I think that educating yourself and then, and then talking about what you're learning in circle and and, in trusted relationships, you know, and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I'm just, you know, being vulnerable with every person I come in contact with, you know, you're feeling out that relationship and making sure it's safe and it Mm -hmm. feels good and that you're sharing according to the depth of the relationship, you know, because oversharing is weird, especially if you get into, <laughs> especially if you get into opposite sex oversharing, because it almost feels mm-hmm. like you're, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to connect too hard mm-hmm. with someone that's not oh, appropriate, yeah. you know? Right. Um, and so I think that, you know, keeping that where it is, and it took me a while to learn that too. It's just trying to like understand and identify what level of a connection and appropriateness and boundaries. I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, huge and it definitely, you know, addicts struggle with both a lot of times. Um, because it's all about getting what you want, you know, and for a lot of, you know, I was a workaholic for so long that addiction was like really, really strong. So, you know, when I think about it, I've been an addict of something or another, skateboarding, filmmaking, all these different things where, you know, I was trying to fix how I felt on the inside with something on the outside, you know, yeah, it's pretty basic, but it's not until now where I can, I can, have a conversation with myself that's sincere and that's honest and that's open. Can I even understand and identify and reflect on all those years and, yeah. and be very thankful that I don't have to live that way? I think that's great. And to be cognizant, I think, uh, I think one thing, uh, for people maybe is that, you know, maybe they feel that, you know, being addicted to something or having that, that, that always is you, you know, and I, and, and, and it's just something that, you were or way that you acted and, um, losing where I'm going with this, but, but I think it's, I think it's a, it's a behavior and it's a pattern and it's a habit. Yeah. It's one of those three behavior, pattern, or habit identifying that you are not the behavior, the pattern or the habit is super important and you need help. Or not you. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, like he the, does. Thank you. <laughs> no, that's a whole other like it's three first, hours. It's the first rule of, yeah. of, of group too, is that yeah. you don't talk and use sentences. Mm-hmm. I was speaking <laughs> metaphorically, but a person needs help mm-hmm. identifying the habit. I know it's me. It's okay. <laughs> a, a person may need help identifying the bad habit, the bad yeah. pattern or the behavior that is being disruptive in their life, but mm-hmm. it's so important, like you said, to identify and, and separate the two yourself from the shame. Yeah. I mean, for yourself from the behavior in order to not create more shame. Yep. And 
I think that it's one of the biggest tools of recovery too, because you can start to learn to separate those two. And that's where shame starts to dissipate. You know, um, Brene Brown talks a lot about shame and how you eliminate shame and how you get rid of shame is you drag it out into the light, you expose it, you know, cause mm-hmm. secrets, they don't, they, they thrive in the darkness, you know, and you're only as sick as your secrets. And while you have secrets, you're sick. Yeah. And if you can pull those out into the light, whether it be in group or whether it be in therapy or whether it be someone that you really trust and, you know, feel safe with, then you can let that shame dissipate. And then the goal then is to identify the behavior that's bringing that level of shame and then to start. And I've noticed that you can't just stop behaviors. You have to replace them with Mm -hmm. other behaviors, you know, and that's why I say when I used to outline my week, I just outlined my week with connection the whole way through as often as possible. And every time I was driving in the car, I'm either listening to some sort of music that's connecting me to something or I'm calling somebody and I'm just always trying to find that connection. And, you know, obviously you can be obsessive about that too, mm-hmm. um, which I have that problem as well. I have the problem of just, but that's probably the best thing you can be yeah. obsessed yeah. about. Yeah, find their best, yeah, find the best thing to obsess on. Some yeah, people's health and running, yeah. Like, yeah Do okay. you ever like tune out and just not think about that stuff? That is a really great point. Like meditate? I'm, not, I'm yeah. not very good at that. And yeah. I think that that is something I really need to incorporate in my practice. You know, journaling would be good for that. Um, meditating would be good. Um, I do walk in nature and I really appreciate that. That's like a time I walk with my dog. Um, but I really like that. And I used to ride my motorcycle a lot. I haven't ridden it in recent years. Um, but riding a motorcycle is really good for tuning out because it, it has like a vibration. It has this like, you know, you're, you're outdoors and you're feeling everything that's happening and you're seeing everything that's happening, but there's no, there's no possible way to talk to anyone about it. Mm -hmm. And it's nice to just kind of get connected with nature and outside and the motorcycle. It is the best. It is like, it's meditation. You've got yeah. wind maybe flowing you need through to you. Break out the motorcycle. I know maybe you're right. But That's I right. think, I think all those things would be good. I think more journaling in my life would be good when things, when life gets really hard, I do journal. Um, you were saying like new stuff or what am I excited about? But yeah, it's really growing in connection and, you know, growing in, self-discovery and learning how to live a balanced life and trying to show up for the people I care about. And then hopefully getting to a point where I can share that message with a broader audience in a, in a very thoughtful and intentional way. And, you know, and hopefully provide for my family while doing it. That'd be the great goal. Yeah. Um, but I need a lot of reps and I need a lot of practice. So I'm kind of saying yes to everything right now. Yeah. Um, Obviously. I want to get a bunch of calls. Obviously. <laughs> I'm saying yes to everything. <laughs> Wait a um, second. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm trying to, yeah. to, to give myself as many opportunities as possible yeah. to, cause it's really like a story you're telling, right. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and hopefully there's some like definitive points and mile markers that, that land and make sense. And I don't know, we'll see, we'll see where it goes, but Dude, thank you so much. Jamie. Yeah. Like, thank you. This is, yeah. This my is pleasure. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Well, let's, let's, I've got nothing have, in this cup, but cheers coffee. to you, Jamie. You can't really cheers if you don't yeah. have anything. We, we've we got love in this. There we go. Bing. Thank you so much.